Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 27 for Sunday, January 20th, 2019. And this is for season two, episode one, Brother of Star Trek Discovery. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I'm, what was it, Captain Sabriel. (laughs) Hey, it's okay. You know, it's a whole new season. Maybe some things got shuffled around. Maybe you're not captain anymore, but you are. No, I had to look down at my pips, (laughs) see if there's any more added. (laughs) <laughs> well, with all these new uniforms, you never know where to look. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm Sabriel Mastin. That's my whole name. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Sabriel. Hello. And we are here to review episode number 749 of Star Trek. Oh, my God. I can't believe we've gone through them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've watched them all. We've reviewed only a few. <laughs> this is the 16th full episode of Discovery and the first second season of any star trek since 2002 oh my gosh (laughs) i'm just glad that we made it this far there wasn't much doubt star trek discovery season two was confirmed quite a while ago but when season one premiered it's the first new star trek tv show in over a decade it's on this new thing called cbs all access which we have plenty of valid complaints about you know in some ways the stack was sort of decked against it and yet here we are. It's been renewed, and we are back, and so is Transporter Lock. Huzzah! Here we are. You're stuck with us. As long as you keep we're downloading. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so keep downloading. I think we're going to keep doing the show anyway, because I enjoy having somebody to talk to about Star Trek. Same here. Um, I don't have anybody local to watch with anymore, so I'm all for this. Ditto. As you and I were discussing off-air, I also lost my Star Trek buddy in the area, and so I am happy to have somebody to talk to remotely. So let's talk about Brother, which is the name of this episode, not to be confused with Brothers, plural, which was a TNG episode starring Data and Lore. They are not in this episode. Yeah, I'm surprised uh, we didn't see any Brent Spiner. I know. He's been in TNG and Enterprise, and I guess also probably DS9 whenever there was a crossover. I don't think he was ever in Voyager, but, you know, why shouldn't he be in Discovery at some point? Yeah, no, uh, for the record, he was not in DS9. Really? Yeah, but he did do a voiceover in Voyager. Well, wait a minute. I, you know what? Julian Bashir, wasn't he on an episode of TNG? Yep. And okay, so that's what I'm thinking of. So there have been crossovers between Data and DS9, just not on DS9, the show. I guess technically, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And what did he do on Voyager as a voiceover? It was in season six or seven, and uh, he, when it was an episode when Marina, Marina Sirtis was on. Oh, with Barkley. Wait, with Barclay? no, hold on, hold on. Back, back up the trolley. I'm confusing the finale of Enterprise. Oh, was, was what, did he do a voiceover for that? Yes, he did a, like, command, or Commander or Troy, whatever, do the thing, uh, while she was talking to Riker about enterprise i see so he was on the com yeah got it okay that makes sense but anyway we're not talking about brothers we're talking about (laughs) brother (laughs) let's talk more about star trek and his generation okay right (laughs) let me give you a brief tldr for brother this episode picks up where season one ended off we find out that the 
NCC-1701, the original Enterprise, is basically adrift, and so Captain Pike and his command crew take command of the Discovery in order to investigate these red stars or pulsars or other signals that have been emitting synchronized, unnatural signals. Spock is not on board, so they go anyway without him to investigate one of these things. They find that the signal that they were tracing is missing, but there is the Hiawatha, which is a Federation ship that was thought lost during the Klingon War. They rescue the crew from there. They discover some new mineral that could be a source of energy. Chief Engineer Stamets announces that he's leaving, and there are a lot of flashbacks to Burnham and Spock growing up together, because Spock is going to be in this season, and we're going to learn more about their relationship. Is that roughly it? That's pretty good. Yep, yep. Blue shirt dies. Don't forget that one. Uh. Right, a blue shirt died. So actually, that is one of the most stunning sequences in this episode for me, was when they got into their little jellyfish starships. This is Pike, Burnham, and the two command crew from the Enterprise. This sequence, the first thing it made me think of was Star Trek Into Darkness, when Kirk and Khan are jettisoning through space. It made me think of that too, when they're like space uh, diving. And the fact that this made me think of a movie then made me realize that I don't think I've ever seen a sequence like this in any Star Trek TV show. No, because uh, in the past on TV shows, they haven't had the budget for such intense action. It wasn't just these ships flying around shooting each other. And CGI has changed a lot in 20 years. Those are both big factors. You're right. So we are witnessing the fact that this is the new Star Trek in over a decade. But also... It's also more action-oriented. I don't think there's been a place for sequences like this in previous Star Treks. Oh, absolutely not. And, oh man, the whole sequence I really liked because I thought those little ship things, whatever they were doing, felt very classic Trek in their design and how they moved. I don't know, it just felt very... They had a very googie design, uh, pointy space things. <laughs> that like, Jetsons like feel that I thought fit perfectly. It's It's interesting you should liken them to classic sci-fi are you referring specifically to tos or just like uh, tos and classic sci-fi i mean it's all kind of one and the same at this point because when i think of tos i think more like 2001 a space odyssey large spaceships moving very slowly oh uh, i don't mean the actual databases themselves just their design gotcha okay because this was a very fast action sequence. Yeah. I assume I'm not the only one who assumed that Commander Nahan, the red shirt, was going to die. You know, I didn't think that at all. I, I wasn't sure if anyone would die, but uh, I was not surprised it was Commander or uh, Lieutenant Jerkface. <laughs> Lieutenant Evan Connolly, his science officer. Yeah, I mean, we were already given reason not to like him, so I guess that softened the blow. He's like, oh, she didn't do this. She didn't do that. Don't worry. I told my cat person roommate that I was boom. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was totally mansplaining her, and maybe he deserved it then. Maybe. <laughs> uh, but the fact that they even retained their colored uniforms when they changed into their space outfits, I'm like, oh, that is... I was like, really? Come on. And I was like, okay. I mean, I'm, I'll go with this, but I was like, really? Come on. <laughs> For characters who we just met, it also helps us continue to distinguish. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Outside. Yeah. It makes logical sense as a viewer. Yeah. But I mean, they did the right. same thing in Star Trek 2009 too. That's true. And that red shirt died. Yeah. But you know, we need the colors because all these humans, they just look the same they to do. me. <laughs> yeah. But it would have made more sense for me if Commander Nahan had died in one way, because I think we have been led to believe 
that number one, the character from the TOS pilot is going to be appearing in this season. And she eventually becomes Pike's number one. So it would make sense if somebody has to die for her to take that spot. Ah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. On the other hand, we have also seen a history of Star Trek very rapidly introducing and killing off female characters in positions of command, especially security officers like Tasha Yar and whatever her name was from the first season of Discovery. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I I mean, okay, that'll go. That's a good segue because Discovery in season one was so bad at introducing characters by their names. That's true. I mean, all you have to do is listen back to episodes of Transporter Lock. We're like, oh, let's talk about Daft Punk, whatever her name is. Yeah. And I loved the sequence they put in here where Pike is like, sitting on the bridge he's like all right we're gonna go around the room and everyone's just gonna tell me your name i don't need your rank it doesn't matter i'm like this is the viewers <laughs> so they went around the room and like yes this is perfect why didn't this happen before but you would think that pike being such an assiduous researcher of circumstances before putting himself into those situations would know everybody's names we don't know that he didn't but it didn't i don't think it mattered Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was for the viewer entirely. Do you notice that one character ignored his request to omit rank? Yeah, the android lady. Yeah, what's her name? Ariel or something? Ariam? Yeah. Yeah. So is she just not capable of being informal? Oh, we don't know. <laughs> it seems like possibly. Hmm. They sure hint at that, but... Uh... Yeah, I would like to know more about her. And apparently it's a different actress than it was last season. Really? I didn't even notice. Yeah. I didn't either. I, I saw it online. People were like, is this a different actress? And like one, I was like, how did you notice? And two, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, how did you notice? You'd probably have to go through the credits for that. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I mean, okay, to be fair, I haven't watched season one in months. So maybe it's more obvious if you recently watched it. You know, just before that sequence, Pike went around and introduced himself. And one of the things he emphasized to the crew was, I'm not Lorca. And I really thought the next thing he was going to say was, well, technically, neither was he. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like that scene too i was like telling the crew like hey or anybody watching like no i'm not that jackass <laughs> like like i i'm someone different here we go i also like pikes you know like finding the uh fortune cookie uh fortune on the floor and a total reference yeah in to, lorca's office yeah and it's total reference to the cage <laughs> oh 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 i've totally missed that <laughs> yep i don't oh oh gosh yeah I don't know how I missed that, because the word cage is right in the fortune, and it was Pike. Yep. <laughs> you might as well have put the word menagerie in right. there. My goodness. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How did I miss that? Some people were saying that the reference at the beginning or needing to use Morse code to speak with Enterprise is a reference to Pike later only being able to communicate with beeps. Like, possibly. I did like that Tilly thought of it and that she had to shout to be heard. <laughs> well, she was oh, shouting sad. because comms hadn't turned down the speaker yet <laughs> but was, another humor scene though like she's like shouting to speak over it but they turn it down just just before she yells it's nice that tilly isn't solely comedic effect though she is sensitive she's thoughtful she's scientific and there is humor from other characters in this show yeah yeah because otherwise it would just be a shut up tilly sort of thing right we don't need that no no and I, I loved Pike's attitude. I loved his nonchalant. I loved his humor. I loved the humor in this episode. Oh my gosh. There was so much of it. What humor in particular? Oh man, there's so many great scenes. Like like one line, he said something that I, I would say, like, you you three, uh, do the censors thing and uh Detmer, uh fly good. 
or not like fly good <laughs> yeah detmer was amused by that but if i had been her I, and that caught my attention as well i would have been like really that's all you think i can do that's it well into the, she's the pilot <laughs> and yeah no i thought that was hilarious and like Re- reno commander reno on the hiawatha i love her she was hilarious well she is by training and trade a professional comedian yeah and I, I thought they played it well. I, th- I loved her character already, and we only saw her for a few minutes. I'm concerned because the last time Discovery introduced a character by way of rescue, he ended up being not who he seemed to be. Eh, I'm not. Do you think we'll see this comedian again? Oh, yeah, we definitely will. We definitely will. Just because the Hiawatha has been lost doesn't mean she's immediately absorbed into the Discovery crew. Oh, no, no, no. But I think we're going to see her again, especially her little robots called the kids. Uh, this little reference she made, she said, the kids can handle a lot of weight. And I'm like, okay, this is going to come up again. Huh. This is going to come up again. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I also just rewatched it again this morning. So <laughs> I did think it was a little dismissive of the health sciences that, oh, yeah, I'm a mechanic and I can fix bodies because they're just machines. I didn't feel that way. I felt it was like you're here in a extreme situation. She had to learn real quick. I mean, she brushed it off, but I didn't think it was intended as a brush off. But can you ever imagine, like, Dr. Crusher being unavailable and Jory LaForge saying, no worries, I can save everybody? No, because I don't think, I mean, that one's ha- I don't think that's what happened here either. <laughs> I think the circumstances just forced her to do what she needed to do. And then she's like, oh, I pick up on this, but she's already inclined towards the sciences, so it's not going to be out of her wheelhouse to figure things out. I suppose, but given the choice, I would still prefer a doctor for my primary care physician. Yeah, I think I think you just hit on the keyword. I don't know if these people had a choice. <laughs> it doesn't look like they did, and I'm wondering when they wake up, they're going to be like, what did you do to me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose if you kept me alive, but don't do it again. <laughs> but you're right, there was humor, even in that action sequence we were talking about, where they're flying through space, where Burnham is like, you got him, ladies, right? Right? <laughs> And they're like, uh, uh, yes. Or, or when Saru's threat ganglia come up and the crew's looking at him all worried. He's like, what, you're surprised? <laughs> yeah. like, really, that is no longer us being tense to be like, oh, no, something bad is going to happen. We're like, obviously something bad is going to happen, Saru. Come on. <laughs> now, I, I was a little confused where Pike's helmet wouldn't go down, which is why he thought he couldn't eject. But they were apparently able to correct his helmet remotely. No, um, the last second, just before the escape hatch goes, it went down. Did somebody do that no, for no, him? No, it, it just did. Like, I don't know if he bashed his head enough or whatever, but it went down. He's like, and he smiled. And then in, in all, it's all happening like one second if you miss it. Because there was people confused online. like, how did he survive out in space? And then Because Burnham had this plan to eject and save him. And they made that plan on the assumption that his helmet wouldn't close. I don't know if Burnham knew that or not. Even his second viewing. Yeah, maybe I might need to watch it again, too, because, I mean, I'm glad everything worked out, and it seems to have. I'm just not sure who's responsible. Uh, no, no. His, his thing is just like, I think he just kept bashing his head until it worked finally. <laughs> have you tried turning it off and back on again? <laughs> Procrastinate maintenance. This episode opened, the cold open. I wasn't sure if that was the new opening credit sequence, and it wasn't, but there were several flashbacks here to Spock, who we've not yet seen as an adult, but we are seeing as a child when Burnham was introduced to the Spock the Spock household? They don't really have a last name. The House of Sarek. Yeah, to the House of Sarek. <laughs> I like that scene, man. Vulcan, Vulcan uh, 
houses are very sparse. Or they spend all their budget on the CGI. One of the two. No, it wasn't CGI. <laughs> that house is actually in Toronto. Really? Yes, it's a real house. I mean, it still might be sparse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is sparse. I've seen some photos, but... What really caught me wasn't just the weird worm dragon that Spock created. Well, that did catch my attention because it implies a level of creativity that I wouldn't normally associate with Vulcans. We got an answer for that later. Oh, he was having nightmares. Uh-huh. That's right. Oh, oh, I did think of the Vulcan hello in this episode when young Spock met young Michael. They're like, hey, Spock, here's the girl that's going to live here. And Spock just slams the door. <laughs> I was like, a Vulcan hello. <laughs> Well, that's what I mean about how rude he was. Yeah, I just thought that was like, yeah, here's your Vulcan hollow. <laughs> oh, kind of like the first episode of the first season. Yeah, you just punch him. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that wasn't that the name of the episode, the Vulcan yeah. hollow? Or? Yeah, but I was just made you think of, instead of punch that you had to do with Klingons, here, I'm just going to shut you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vulcans have very bizarre etiquette. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure that Sarek taught his son to do that. No. But it also makes me wonder why Spock was such a jerk as a kid. Uh, he has half human, half Vulcan. He, no one, well, I mean, he has Amanda, but like, still trying to figure out those emotions. Do you think he was either A, jealous of having to share the household with a new sibling, or B, racist? I don't think it was either. I think it's just a kid, like, there's a new environment, there's a change. And, you know, we might have more answers later, like the nightmares. But, hmm. I mean, I don't have a sibling. I couldn't tell you how it feels to or to have someone move in all of a sudden that you don't know as a kid. I mean, if I was an only child, I might be like, finally, a playmate. Want to play Smash Brothers? <laughs> but so if you weren't Spock. <laughs> uh, oh, nobody is. Nobody can be. Spock is oh, Spock. Oh, ten people have been Spock. Ten? Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. All right, so uh, we're talking about adults and children, both uh-huh. live action and animated? Uh well, animated was was um, Leonard Nimoy too, but yeah, like ten pe- actors have played Spock in various ages and roles already. Yeah, but in, even in the animated series, Spock went back in time and met his younger self. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep. But anyway, yeah. See, I was just making a real joke off what you said. <laughs> <laughs> L- let's talk about Sarek a little bit because he has some poignant interactions with Burnham in this episode, and the impression I walked away with was. Sarek is a pretty good dad. Yeah, he seems like it, doesn't he? And But maybe he's a good dad again, dad with humans, I don't know. His relationship with Spock is tense and complicated, but with Burnham, he actually seems empathetic and sensitive and caring. I don't know, I don't get it. That's still not what I would expect from a Vulcan. Uh, I mean, he's been around Amanda for a while. He fell in love with an, uh, uh, a human. But by the time Mark Leonard shows up in TOS, he seems to have hardened his heart a little bit. And Well, no, it's still the same relationship with Spock, I think. So you think the tension in their relationship primarily originates on Spock's end? I don't know about that, but whatever reason, those two are tense against each other. It sure seems like it's Spock, though. Hmm. It's plausible, anyway. Oh, yes, I certainly agree with that. And we haven't seen enough of Sarek's and Spock's relationship in Discovery to really know for sure. I'm basing this solely on what I saw on TOS. And most of the relationship I've seen between those two have actually been in the books, which technically are not canon. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was a book, Desperate Hours, which I just read earlier this year. It is a discovery novel by David Mack, and it features Spock and Burnham going on 
a mission together back when Burnham was on the Shenzhou. Oh, really? And so in this episode that we just saw, when she says she hasn't spoken to Spock in years, I don't think that contradicts the book because the Shenzhou was years ago. Yeah, yeah. But it does make me wonder if there are going to be contradictions to that book in season two, which is fine because books are not canon, but obviously these books are licensed products that were made to tie into season one. Yeah. You know, there was one thing Sarek did when he was leaving Burnham's quarters. He told her to focus on the issue at hand. And he, this is really trivial, but he made a hand gesture when he did that. And it occurred to me, I don't think I've ever seen him do that. As a Vulcan, he usually has his hands by his side or clasped behind his back. And the fact that he would just make a hand gesture just seemed a very human thing to do. You're right. You're right. I hadn't thought of that. And this is also the very first episode where I noticed something without looking for it, but what you have previously pointed out is the way Saru swings his hands behind his back as he's walking. It's not interesting? It's fascinating, and I can't believe I never noticed it before. He has a very fascinating walk with uh, as a Kelpian. And um, yeah, I think it's just amazing. I think it's really cool. It adds a bit of character. And what adds even more character is the short trek about him, which did tie into this episode. The, the short treks are important, and we'll find out more. At least some of them. Let's talk a little bit about Tilly and Stamets. Oh my gosh. I uh I I love Tilly so much. <laughs> we know why, but why in this episode? Uh well in here she's like oh she's all nervous around Captain Pike and she's like got the hots for him, clearly. <laughs> but also like is nervous around him because he's like teasing her. And like like when they're trying to identify who he is with DNA scan and uh She's like, it's weird saying uh, your pinky's wrong. It's weird saying your pinky's wrong because pinky's not a very authoritative uh, finger or something like that. Yeah, I was wondering if she had a crush on him or if she's just nervous around. Both. Like, this is. I don't know where in his career Pike is. I don't know if he has the legend that he does by the time Kirk takes over, but maybe she's just nervous around a legend. Uh, both. Yeah. <laughs> Both. That's fair. That's, and I loved all the crew fair. of Discovery just standing around like, oh, we understand. <laughs> it's Tilly doing Tilly things. Yep. That's Tilly, all right. <laughs> and then at the end, when they captured the asteroid by ram- letting it sh- ram into the back of the ship, and she's like, that's the power of math, people, from the, from the preview. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I thought her interactions with Stamets were very touching. Yeah. Uh, heck, there was even a possible and or Star or TOS reference in there too. But um, yeah, like tell him I, I don't want you to leave. I mean, basically, yeah, he he understood. He he wasn't his jerk hole. Uh, Stamets. He's like, I know this has changed. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> you are luminescent, or so it is. I think he told, called her. I'm like, oh. <laughs> he he was a little bit of a jerk. Yeah, but also shut up. Told, <laughs> yeah, like say fewer things. That was mean. Yes and no. I think it was a harsh way to end the conversation. What was the TOS reference? Stamets mentioned he knew a, I don't know, like by a space botanist or something, astrobotanist, whatever like that. It could be a reference to Sulu, who was also a botanist. It was interesting that both the Enterprise and Discovery crew seemed envious of the other ship. Yeah, right? <laughs> but, but the Sulu reference, like Sulu's character is now canonically gay. Uh, we know Stamets <laughs> is. Well, he's canonically gay in the movies, which might be an entirely different universe. He is. <laughs> it is technically it's a technically different universe, but they're they are still the same characters. 
just different. Like the, the events of Kelvin blowing up didn't change Sulu. Yeah, but like Star Trek Six, we know that he has a daughter, Demora, right? Uh-huh. His daughter was in uh, Beyond Earth too, or Star Trek Beyond too. But did we ever in any of the original okay, TOS shows clear. or movies? We don't know how, but uh, intended his relationships with men at some point and is married to one. But we don't know where Demora came from. We don't. Oh, don't get me wrong. I would love for that continuity to be consistent between the movies and the Kelvin universe and this universe and et cetera. But I have seen universe reboots used as an excuse in other media to change characters' orientation. Yeah. So from a logi- from logically, you're absolutely right that you know this Romulan going back in time and blowing up the Kelvin wouldn't make somebody <laughs> change their orientation. But I also know that a scriptwriter would not that would not stop them from using that excuse yeah that's true we got the whole new medium let's reboot it let's do a thing i mean we've seen characters change genders like with battlestar galactica yeah not i was that just that was... thinking starbuck but no that was unrelated universes right right i don't discovery is not being called a reboot of course it is supposed to be part of the same universe but you know if klingons can look different without an excuse then why should anything else be the same and apparently they're getting closer back to their roots this next season or this season next season this season, this season. Okay, yeah. well, that'd be cool. Back to Stamets. Yeah, what about Stamets? I loved his little, basically equivalent of listening to a voicemail message. Uh, when he first introduced him, like a holographic voicemail. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I've done that. I have voicemails for people I have lost, and sometimes I play them back. I like that. I like that, too. Yeah, I like seeing this softer side of Stamets. And I'm sorry that we didn't get to see much of it when Colbert was alive. Yeah. And I love that realization when he realized why Colbert loved that place, the opera, so much. <laughs> the hmm. Cassinian, Cassilian, something like that. Because um, he knew it would like, like, oh, this is this this chaos is what actually would speak to Stamets. And like, oh, it's so sweet. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Stamets eventually figured it out. <laughs> so you and I have talked about various individual points in this episode that have caught our attention. This episode also does the job of setting up the arc for potentially the entire season. We have this new threat that are these red pulsars. <laughs> Where's the red thing? I was expecting a red thing. <laughs> I know. Pike is very non-commanderial, if that's a word. He, just, he seems very layman in some of his language. I loved it. I loved it. So what we're seeing with this season premiere is the continuation of Serial storytelling, something that continues throughout the entire arc, which is traditional for TV shows nowadays, whether it's The Good Place, The Walking Dead, The Flash, etc. They're all continuing in the tradition begun by Star Trek Deep Space Nine, as opposed to singular bottle episodes like TNG used to do. And definitely Voyager. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Voyager. And <clears throat> Enterprise the first two seasons, really, as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, the temporal Cold War popped up every now and then, but it wasn't really a thing. So this isn't a surprise, but what what do you think about this particular arc about these red pulsars? Obviously, it's very early on. We have very little to go with, so it's, there might be some speculation necessary. But do you think the red pulsars or whatever and Spock being the two primary points of interest will be interesting? I mean, I sure hope so. But like, what, what I found interesting is that Spock was having dreams about these things and wrote them down in his little personal diary he's had for however old he is 30 years or something like that and uh so somehow spock is connected to them i mean if these connections i, th- I find interesting but 
Uh, still a little too soon. Yeah, at first I was trying to figure out if Spock was connected to them or if it's just something that he figured out before everybody else did. And you, you bring up a good point that if his nightmares are connected and they are the same ones he was having as a kid, then they are inextricably linked. This is not just something that naturally occurred and he, as a scientific genius, figured it out. I think it's maybe both, honestly. So why would he not bring it to Pike's attention, I wonder? Uh, it could be traumatic for some reason. Pike said he trusts his officers, and Spock maybe not knowing how to deal with this. I mean, this is still early in his life. He's still working on this whole emotion thing. That's true. I mean, in the cage, or the menagerie, depending on what you want to call it, we saw him smiling when he looked at those flowers on <laughs> uh, Talos, whatever the plant was. And I remember, I think it was in one of the books where... Somebody said to him, like decades later, hey, you know, I was talking to Pike and he told me that when you were his officer, you used to smile and be actually kind of jovial. And Spock said, ah, yes, I was putting on affectations to try to blend in with the human crew. <laughs> I like it. Of course, that is what Spock would say to cover the fact that he actually was being emotional. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Vulcans don't lie. They just embellish the truth. <laughs> I love <laughs> <They> exaggerate it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you think this is another potential extinction level event for the Federation. I mean, uh, the Klingons nearly wiped them out. And now are they going to face that again? You know, this do seem so common that it would not come up again in the future because they're so popular. Uh, like, oh yeah, just another one. That's why we don't talk about it in the future. <laughs> but I just, I just have to wonder how often can this crew save the entire galaxy? I mean, Enterprise and Voyager did <laughs> multiple times too. I suppose. I suppose if they were just doing routine scientific surveys, that wouldn't be the stuff of a TV show. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's why we don't have the the uh, Star Trek, uh, like, I don't know, Hiawatha or the Star Trek uh, Saratoga. But we are getting Lower Decks. Yep. The least important ship in the Federation. <laughs> uh, we just don't know enough about the red things yet. Sometimes it looks like creepy red angel thing. Sometimes it looks like creepy eye thing. Sometimes it's... Uh, yeah, we just don't know enough yet, but it's they're setting it up for potentiality. Yeah, when Burnham got stabbed in the leg, which, by the way, was an awesome action sequence, where did she think she was running to, and how was it that she was able to get beamed back up to the discovery? I was suspecting she was just trying to get outside where there would be less crap in the way, but uh, just a hypothesis. Like, like, don't really have much basis for that. But I thought in order to get transported, they needed the pads, and when Pike went back down to save her, there were no pads. Uh, yeah, optimal, but yeah, we don't have, like, why, all of a sudden, why did it work now? I mean, they didn't need them, it was just made a better thing. And they actually confirmed something that everyone, I forgot, was just an assumption. I thought it was, like, known canon that it was better to do transporter pad the transporter pad, but no, it was just a, an assumption by the fan base to make up for why they don't just beam everywhere instead of using uh, turbo lifts. <laughs> right, because they do use site-to-site -site transports a lot. And we also got to see how turbo lifts work in this episode. Yeah, which... I thought it was interesting. A lot of people were like, what is this? Why aren't they just like elevators? We've seen elevators before. Yeah, I, it seemed like there was a lot more empty space inside the ship than I was expecting. Yeah, that was a common sentiment. Like, really? <laughs> but anyway, when Burnham was stabbed in the leg, she briefly misperceived Pike as some sort of a multi-winged red angel. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think some of the trailers gave away a little bit too much information, and that may not have been a hallucination. Oh, it's possible. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, we'll see. It. I am curious, though. As they said, all these red pulses occurred so far away 
that they could not be a naturally occurring phenomenon, the way they were synchronized. And I'm wondering what intelligence or power could make that happen. And the only thing I can think of is Q, and I really hope that's not it. I don't think it's going to be it. That doesn't feel like, this doesn't feel like a Q-like phenomenon. They wouldn't just like randomly have these red things happen periodically and not it's a little too subtle, and also, as far as we know, the first canonical appearance of Q was in Encounter at Farpoint. Yeah. I mean, there may have well, been no, a Q he in, in Trelane on TOS. We know there was a Q at the Civil War. We know there was a Q at Woodstock. <laughs> but we didn't know that at the time. Oh. It's, it's, no, you are correct about that. But... Uh, don't, don't read that. <laughs> <laughs> right. The first time Starfleet became aware of Q was in Encounter at Farpoint. So, yeah, we just don't have enough info but you know i'm ready for the ride yeah i am not watching the previews at the end of each episode because i like to go in knowing as little as possible which maybe doesn't make me a good podcast co-host i don't know but no no because i usually don't either oh really what and today whatever whatever reason i just did i just like "Eh, i'm not gonna turn this off i don't know if it's because the mouse is too far away or what but i just well as i mentioned off the air to you last time when we were i was watching the escape artist short tracks and immediately went into the preview for season two I was so quick to turn it off that I wouldn't watch it that I hit the wrong button and turned off my PS4 during an OS update and wiped out my entire hard drive. That's right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how intent I am on not watching previews. Yeah, normally I will turn my TV off or whatever so I don't hear it. Like, whatever reason this time, I just like, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead with it. maybe Maybe I was just having so much fun with the episode, I didn't care what's coming up. I don't know. I really couldn't tell you why I did it this time where I don't normally... I mean, for me, this is a habit dating back to DS9, where I would walk out of the room when the previews came on. My dad would watch them. And Next one time... time Star Trek like, Space Nine. Oh, I mean, in hindsight, I love watching them. They're so great. <laughs> yeah, like I remember I recently showed my mom, we were watching the second episode of TNG to have Leah Brahms in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wanted to refresh her on the first episode with her, because we hadn't seen it in years. And so I played her the 30-second clip, and the the preview for that episode, the first one with Leah Brahms, said nothing about Jordy's relationship with Leah Brahms. Oh, no, no, no. They're terrible <laughs> sometimes. I mean, for me, that was the A-plot, but the preview made us seem like the Enterprise is in danger and only Jordy LaForge can save it. <laughs> That's Which is true. It, you know, it's all true. <laughs> but oh, I remember one time there was an episode of Voyager where I walked out of the room to avoid the preview, and when I came back, my dad told me what I had missed. <laughs> and he knew exactly what he was doing and I was so pissed because it was the episode of Voyager the very first one to have any evidence that they would encounter the Borg uh, one of those things he always knew was coming but you never knew when right and I was like oh, damn it really that's not going to be a surprise anymore anyway so I think that's it for our review of Brothers I think we've covered all the things that caught our attention yeah I was skimming through like references like I had fun reading people I, I can catch a lot of references, but I don't always catch them all. I had fun ones. Like, there was a great reference here. Apparently, there's a reference to Lost. What? Um, the Hiawatha's registry number was NCC-815, which is apparently the flight number of the Oceanic Flight from the first episode of Lost. Oh, so the name Hiawatha is not a reference. No. Uh, or, let's see. I missed this even on a second viewing, but apparently there was a Bullion mentioned among the casualties in the Hiawatha. Oh. I missed that. And that would have been the first Boolean on Discovery? I think so, but I'm not 100% sure. Something that caught my eye in a second viewing when we were there walking aboard the Hiawatha, there was an alien that did have a, nor- like a normal humanoid face. 
laying on a bed. And I was wondering if this is supposed to be the alien that's in the Star Trek animated series. It's often sitting in uh, at con at the con. And oh, that I do not know. I have not seen enough of the animated series. Yeah, and I couldn't tell here, but it was laying down, or, or you know, a real life version of a cartoon is hard to know too. But it just made me think of that character, that alien. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I am looking forward to the rest of season two. Me too. I can't wait. Uh, man, we're gonna have a whole bunch of Star Trek to watch for a few months. I know, now. and a whole lot of transporter lock to listen to. Hell yeah! And each episode will be beginning and ending with our new voiceovers, which we're very grateful for. These were provided by Lucky Annie. You can find her on Twitter at Hey Lucky Annie, and she is the same artist who does the voiceovers for my other podcast, Polygamer. So thank you very much for that consistent branding and that professional voiceover. We appreciate it. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, she is a huge Star Trek fan herself, and in fact, she tweeted a photo of herself in her Discovery uniform with Captain Lorca. Nice, nice. Yeah, so this was a good fit, so thank you very much. Also, we have occasionally referenced Memory Alpha. This is a resource that we use as part of our own research into these episodes, and it has traditionally been found at memory-alpha.wikia.com, and they are moving to fandom.com. That will be happening over the course of the next month. So your links will probably be automatically updated, but just a heads up that they will be moving and hopefully they will still be around providing the exhaustive resource that they always have. Yeah, I'm use- I am I use it a lot. They used it a lot for Star Trek Beyond. All right. So on that note, you can find us online. My Twitter handle is GameBits. I'm Sabreality on Twitter, but just go to sabreal.me for all the links so you don't have to spell it. And if you have your own thoughts and takes on Discovery, hit us up anywhere you like and we'd be happy to share your thoughts, your commentary, your letters to the editor. On the next episode of Transporter Lock, airing just a week from now when we review episode two. Yes, please do. I love talking Trek. Yes, as do I. So keep your hailing frequencies open. Until next time, hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at Transporter Lock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at transporterlock.com.